often is a question that we don't necessarily contemplate. The American poet, Mary Oliver, refers, refers to it as our one wild and precious life. And what are you going to do with it? <laughs> In a way, it doesn't matter that traditional Buddhism talks about many lifetimes, past and future, because for all sorts of reasons, which perhaps I'll go into over this week, they're not going to be you. <laughs> Let's make that very clear. There might be future and past lifetimes, but they're not going to be you. The one life you know and possibly have and don't know as well as perhaps we ought is this one life. And rarely sometimes does the question raise itself as to what are we going to do with this one life? How are we going to live it? And in many ways, the whole path of Buddhism, to use that rather strange term, I find it rather strange anyway, is a response to that question because almost referring back to what I was saying this morning, do you want to live that life in some kind of freedom or do you wish to live that life under blind compulsion? That's in a way the question. Um, perhaps I'll be controversial here and say that the Buddha was never enlightened. He was awakened. Um, he woke up. And what he woke up to was that freedom to live a life which was free of the compulsions which normally drive our ordinary unawakened lives as we traverse the course of our lives. Those unawakened lives the Buddha saw very clearly were driven by psychological compulsions, the compulsion particularly towards greed, the compulsion towards dislike and aversion, sometimes hatred, and the compulsion not to want to know a lot of the time, to be in blindness, to be in some kind of state of delusion or ignorance. The alternative to that to which he woke up was that you can live your life completely and utterly differently. You can live your life in a way that is driven or at least fueled by generosity, by love and kindness and compassion, and by understanding. And there we have the themes of the week, really, in two aspects of that trinity there of generosity, kindness, compassion understanding so we have the choice uh, one of the most famous rubrics or the summations of the whole of the Buddhist path is a very simple piece which is found in the Dhammapada which is kind of one of the most translated works which is to cease to do what is unwholesome to learn to do what is wholesome and to purify the mind that is the teaching of all the Buddhas Sounds very simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds really easy until you try to do it. <laughs> and then we hit upon compulsion after compulsion after compulsion. One of the images that is used um, in the traditions, and it's throughout a number of the traditions, is our blind journey through samsara. And samsara is this kind of limitless ocean of repetition. 
Um, that is what it indicates, repetitive being. Um, the actual word derives in the original language from uh, a root which means to go round in circles. Um, and that is often, I don't know if it is for you, because you have to examine us in terms of your own experience, often the feeling tone of much of what we do in life is that we do things again and again and again. And as the author Lawrence Durrell once said, the only thing we learn from history, and probably our own personal histories, is we don't learn anything from history. <laughs> you know, we keep doing the same thing again and again and again. And so it is that kind of freedom that I was mentioning this morning that was, the Buddha was talking about. It is often referred to in the traditions as the unconditioned. Again, I'll pick that up later on in the week and talk a little bit more about that. But to be realistic is to understand where we are. And this is the starting point of the whole of Buddhist practice, is not to go off into some ideological realm, into some sort of metaphysical fantasy of where you would like to be, but to actually understand where you are, the springs of our behavior what compels us to do what we do. Not out of any self-chastisement to make ourselves feel even worse about ourselves than we often do. It's not at all to do with this because it's only upon the ground of really understanding where we are that we can then begin to move forward. Otherwise, we are blindly compelled, as I say, to rise and fall and rise and fall uh, continuously with very, very little discernment as to the direction that our lives take. Um, many of us perhaps find ourselves in situations just, well, I'm here. How did I get here? I'm not quite aware of what brought me to this position. Or perhaps this thought has struck you from time to time, why am I doing this again? Haven't I made this mistake before? You know, that, you know, we don't learn anything from history. These kinds of questions often, I think, really pinpoint, when we raise them to ourselves, pinpoint the blindness of much of what we do. Now, I think the word that's used, bodhi, in Buddhism, which is the root of the word Buddha, is actually a lovely word because it means to wake up. It means actually to wake up from that kind of narcoleptic, you know, walking through life that we often do, and to confront what is actually going on and to confront particularly the dimension of what we can do something about and this is a very realistic aspect of Buddhist practice there's an awful lot in this world which you can't do anything about an awful lot all that stuff often that's going on in the world which is outside our control, natural disasters and political changes and all sorts of things which are way, way beyond our control. Individuals, perhaps collectively, in some cases we might have a bit more power than we think we have. But for the most part, we are perhaps having feelings of impotence in, in regard to many of those things which are happening. But the one thing the Buddha is really trying to make clear to us that we do have control over if we care to make an effort, is our own minds. So if nothing less, Buddhism is a profound psychology. Um, for its two and a half thousand years of its existence, its primary question really has been, how do we transform the mind? 
How do we transform the mind from that mind which blindly, as I say, and compulsively you know, moves us into areas of greed and delusion and unkindness and hatred and all of those aspects? How do we move out of that? How can we affect that transformation? Because all of our negative emotions, all of negativities that are there in our minds are traceable in Buddhist psychology back to those three roots. All of the wholesome psychology which we find are traceable to the opposites, the ones I've already mentioned, the ones that the Buddha discovered were the more fitting ways to live in this world, which were those roots of generosity, kindness, compassion and understanding or insight into the way things are. So it was how to affect that change that the whole of Buddhism has been concerned with right from its inception, really through to the traditions that have grown in its history. And there are many, many of them, as I mentioned last night. There are not just one tradition saying one exactly, or one thing exactly the same. There are many traditions and many approaches. But that has been the guiding force behind this approach throughout its history. But its starting place always has to be, well, where are we? What happens? when we go compulsively through life in this way. Do we, and this is again a question I think we all have to ask ourselves, and I presume to a degree the answer must be slightly yes in relation to, the, to this, otherwise you wouldn't be here, which is do we want to change? Uh, do we want to let go of our miseries, our dukkha? Um, because actually, um, joking aside, a lot of that dukkha, a lot of those things that happen to you which you possibly are predictable, um, we are deeply attached to. Um, even if we're miserable, we know we're miserable. <laughs> we know, in a sense, through a, a sense of identity that we have, and perhaps we can even form an identity out of misery in many instances. Yeah, so let's not underestimate the power of of those compulsions and the power of the sufferings that we bring upon ourselves in many instances. Now, the Buddha made it clear, and perhaps I'm just going to examine a little bit of this this evening, the Buddha made it clear that there are many types of dukkha, and for those who weren't party to what I said this morning, this word dukkha covers a vast multitude of things. It really is from something quite minimal in our lives to something very, very painful um, and tragic often. There are those elements of life that none of us can escape. Those are the existential facts. Um, the existential facts of old age, sickness and death. Um, a Buddhist magazine a few years ago ran a little spoof movie poster in it which said, coming to you soon, old age, sickness and death. Bring it over. I'm trying to um, cover over the fact of our mortality. Having spent quite a long time in the East, um, I've often felt my most mortal when I've been in India in particular, in Sri Lanka, um, because things aren't sanitized in the same way as they are here. Um, sickness can very easily lead to death. Whereas in this culture, often the facts of those things, old age, sickness and death, are sanitized, they're covered over. 
death is something you often see on the streets in India, and it's not hidden. I remember one time, and uh, this says actually a lot about India in many ways, I sat probably behind the most famous tourist monument in the whole of India, which I'm sure some of you can think of the name of, the Taj Mahal, sitting there. There's a river that runs at the back of it called the Yamuna River, at the back of it. And I was sitting there eating my roti and whatever it was at the back of the Taj, and I happened to peer over and look at the river. And there was a corpse being eaten by two dogs. And what had happened was that a corpse had been partially cremated, it had washed up, and the scavenger dogs, pie dogs, were eating the corpse. This is at the most, you know, the most famous monument probably in the whole of India. It's not sanitised, I don't recommend seeing things like that, but sometimes there are, are a good wake-up call in a sense to seeing that we are mortal and that none of us are going to escape that. So that's the strong end the tragedies, the facts, the existential facts, that none of us are going to escape of our old age, sickness and death. However, the vast part of life is spent, actually, perhaps I'll lay this one on you and see how you feel about it, in states of irritation. Things are not quite right. They're not the way we necessarily want them to be. Even when we get those things which we want, which we desire and which the mythologies certainly in the Western world lay out that are going to make you happy and more fulfilled and a, you know, a very happy individual or whatever it might be, those mythologies, you still feel dissatisfied. I've got the thing I really wanted but it's not quite the right colour <laughs> or something of that sort. That yeah. it is a mythology is held out to us. And so we live often in a state of irritation because life isn't quite giving us what, what we want, even when we're getting the material goods, the satisfaction, the careers, and everything else that goes with the Western lifestyle. We are often left in a state of feeling life is perhaps more than this. And so we have this vast spectrum in this field of dukkha, which is from these minor aspects which can be really, really petty, really quite banal at times. You know, when somebody's eaten the chocolate out of the box that you wanted, even down to that pettiness, you know, right the way up to the tragedies, and this covers this vast spectrum of, actually, which is a much better translation than suffering, of our unsatisfactoriness. We find ourselves in a state of continuous dissatisfaction in life. Not, a, not always, not totally. I don't want to paint or present a monolithic picture. There are joys, but then there's the worm in the apple which says it's going. <laughs> Pleasure is there, but it's passing. There is that kind of worm in the apple still. The Buddha himself actually presented a view on Dukkha. He presented a very particular view which said that there were three types of dukkha. There were three dimensions of it in a way which we have to deal with. The first he called dukkha dukkha, which is the pain of pain in some, some ways. Now the Buddhist tradition has never been unrealistic enough to think that you can do anything about physical pain in a direct sense, in the, in the way that it cannot be avoided. If you have it, it's there, 
But what does the mind do with it once it has arisen? That then becomes the question. Um, even the Buddha himself couldn't escape sickness and death. Uh, in the early Pali scriptures, it's very clear, unlike some of the later traditions, it's very clear in the Pali scriptures that the Buddha gets old, he gets sick, and he dies. Um, and even his closest disciples can't quite accept this. Um, there's a very famous instance in something called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which deals with the Buddha's final days, where the Buddha's disciple, Ananda, who's been with him 20-odd years or so, and following around the Buddha and caring for him and looking after him, is basically leaning on a doorpost, wailing, because the Buddha is dying. And basically the Buddha says, and I'm paraphrasing it, it's a lot more elegantly in the original, basically the Buddha says, have you been listening to a word I've said for the last 25 years? <laughs> At one stage the Buddha even makes fun of himself. I mean, he's aged 80, which in India two and a half thousand years ago was a pretty good age. You know, it's a pretty good age even in India today in the kind of the classes which are not the upper classes. Um, but the Buddha even jokes about himself. He refers to himself as a worn-out, broken-down old cart. And it's only, he's only kept together by being strapped up. <laughs> you know, so he's even got a sense of humor about the condition he finds himself in. You know, so there is that dukkha of dukkha. But the one thing it says absolutely clearly in the text, and it's a lovely phrase, it says that the Buddha, having said this about being a worn-down, broken-out old cart, he says it with absolute clarity and peace of mind. He's not bewailing the fact. He's not saying, you know, I would like things to be otherwise. I'd like my youth back again or whatever. He's just realistically owning up to the fact that he's old and he's probably going to die. <clears throat> but he's saying with absolute clarity and peace of mind. That is the difference. How do we approach those kind of existential facts, the things which are unavoidable? Do we approach them with agitation or do we approach them with peace and clarity of mind? Which in a way does not magnify which something which is already perhaps quite painful, like sickness or physical pain of some form. Or some form. Can we approach that with equanimity of mind and peace of mind? Or does the mind rail against it and magnify it? Much of the time, particularly in regard to things like physical pain, we see this a lot, the mind magnifies it, a bit like a toothache. You know, the toothache becomes all-encompassing. The only thing the person with toothache can think about is the toothache. And they keep, keep probing the cavity with their tongue or something and causing themselves more pain. Um, when it's moving away from that, there's another nice little story in something called the Sangyutta Nikaya, which is connected discourses, where it makes it very clear that this phenomena of dukkha is actually a mental thing. It's not just the physical happening. And it describes, and again I'll paraphrase, it describes the Buddha walking, uh, walking in northern India, and in those days he's had got sandals or shoes or anything like that is walking barefoot and it says for some particular reason which I won't go into that he steps on a shard of stone he steps on a shard of stone and the shard of stone penetrates his foot and it gives him immense pain um, but as the Pali text then says but no dukkha <laughs> so in other words it's this, the pain 
that is all. There is not the magnification of the mind behind it. And I'm going to now mention the other form of dukkha which the Buddha talks about that we all have to deal with and are all generally pretty reluctant to accept, which is called Viparanama dukkha, the dukkha of change. The changes that come about in our lives, the things that we have no control over. Again, How do we approach them? Do again, I'm posing this in the form of a question, do we approach those with equanimity? Do we approach those without railing against what is actually happening? Or do we do the opposite? Do we fight and rail and stamp our feet mentally that these changes have occurred? The change of impermanence is a major issue for all of us. Change and impermanence and of course death being on the spectrum of that as well. This is one of the major issues that we all have to deal with in our lives. The little changes. Um, the Austrian poet, who was of Czech nationality but grew up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Rilke, actually said, we live in this world forever taking leave. <laughs> I thought it was a wonderful phrase, forever taking leave. Because in a way that's what we're doing. We're always saying goodbye to something in our lives. To loved ones, to pets, to the society that we've known and grown up with, you know, and so on and so forth. I won't give you a great litany here of things, but we're always taking leave of the known and stepping out into something different. So again, the question becomes, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the changes that are occurring in our lives that, for the most part, we don't have any control over? I want to return just for a few minutes to the compulsion and the habits because actually avoidance of some of these issues of pain, the avoidance of change, become compulsions as well. We are craving, strangely enough, to avoid an awful lot uh, in our lives. We're probably craving to avoid more than we are craving to have in many ways. We rise and fall in our lives psychologically because of these compulsions. And I just want to detail this out for a second or two. The Buddha spoke of six places that we can be born or reborn. Now, in some of the literature, and I won't go into why, but this is treated extremely psychologically. And there's a huge literature which deals with the psychological dimensions of Buddhist thought. These are called the six destinations, the six realms of rebirth. And I'm going to describe them to you, then put them in the context of the way that we live. The first is called a god realm, a deva realm. Um, in Indian mythology, in Indian cosmology, um, in Hinduism in particular, the gods are outside of the whole of Sangsara. The Buddha firmly puts in place puts them in their place and puts them back into sangsara. The, the gods just have a longer life expectancy. <laughs> That's all. Uh, they too, after their, their, their merit that got them, I call it their merit bank balance, 
that gets them to this position, once it runs out, then they have to take lower rebirth. And just bear in mind while I give you the traditional description, and then I'll gloss it. So the gods have everything according to the textual descriptions. Um, they have these long lives, these beautiful lives, but they have no motivation to do anything at all, particularly not to practice the Buddha Dharma. Uh, they have no compulsion to do that at all because as far as they're concerned, they don't perceive dukkha whatsoever in their lives, um, apart from when they're about to die, that is, and take up a lower rebirth. And one particular text, it's a Tibetan text, actually says when they're about to die, they start to smell and nobody wants to speak to them. <laughs> and so they suffer <laughs> as a result. And it's the first time they know suffering is when they're about to fall out of their godlike realm. Then there are a group which are known as the Asuras. It's a very difficult word to translate. The word literally translates because it's a contraction of a, of a Sanskrit term. It should literally be those whom the sun doesn't shine on because it means Asurya which is the sun is Surya, Asurya is negation of it in Sanskrit. So it means those whom the sun doesn't shine on, um, they are the strivers and the people who want to get to the position where the gods are. And I used to joke about this years ago, it's not such a phrase we hear these days, I used to call them the upwardly mobile. <laughs> they were trying to get to the top. Um, and interestingly, in the iconography sometimes, in the depiction of this realm, what we find is there's what's called the wish-fulfilling tree. It's lovely. I love this kind of stuff in Indian mythology. The wish-fulfilling tree, it, it's bounteous. It produces anything you want. However, its fruits are all in the realm of gods, and its roots are in the realm of the Asuras, uh, what are called jealous gods, because they want what the gods have got. Um, so they strive extremely hard and produce all the goods for the gods, basically. <laughs> then there's the human realm. I'll just leave that until the end for a minute. And then there are three what's called lesser rebirths, which are described here. And these lesser rebirths, well, one we will recognize, which is the animal realm. And the animal realm is one of blind instinct in ancient Buddhism. It's also the realm of great physical suffering and distress, um, and I often fond here of kind of quoting Schopenhauer, says, every time I look around at the animal world, I see everything eating everything else. You know, and in a way, that is what the animal realm is doing. It's, it's one of great and immense suffering uh, on a very, very physical level. You've only got to think of the millions and millions of animals that are probably being slaughtered at this very day to provide food for just human beings and other animals, pets and things like that. Then there is a realm called the Prater realm, or the Petter realm, which is the uh, Pali version of it. Uh, the Prater realm is the realm of hungry ghosts. They're lovely little cuddly figures. <laughs> hungry ghosts are described as having these tiny little scrawny necks with pinhole mouths and enormous stomachs and an endless thirst and appetite. Now, you can see what that's indicating, can't you? It's indicating a desire that can never be fulfilled, that can never be satisfied. Whatsoever. And in fact, it says each drop of food and drink they get into their stomachs causes them immense pain um, because they can never get enough at all. And if you thought you escaped it, well, you can't. There's the hell realms at the bottom. <laughs> hell realms here are quite interesting. Again, the iconography is very indicative of what's going on here. It's presided over by the god of death called Yama in the hell realm. And um, those who enter the hell realms because of their 
activities because of their actions of body, speech, and mind. Very unwholesome ones, obviously, to get them in the hell realm. Um, what Yama, the god of death, does is he holds up a mirror. And the punishments which are meted out in hell depend on your judgment on yourself in what you see in the mirror. Okay, so whatever sufferings are there are not from anybody else other than yourself. Now, what's arising out of your own mind by what you see in the mirror, and you can think of that as very strongly, of what you know, spends the hells that many people suffer. Yeah. Now, when I very first heard this teaching, and way, way back, as I was saying last night, whenever I first heard this teaching, I, was, I thought it was really clever. I thought it was really absolutely incredibly clever. And I thought, ah, I know what these are, psychological types aren't they? And I said to the teacher who I was studying with, I said, um, is it true? Are these psychological? Because I know people in the godlike realm who think they've got everything. I know those who are really depressed and in hells and miseries and those full of desire and those who don't think about anything other than procreation and eating and all the rest of it, which is kind of animalistic, and so on and so forth. I won't go through them all. I haven't touched the human realm yet. And... Of course, the human realm here represents the possibility of wisdom and compassion or understanding and compassion and the possibility of liberation from compulsion. And I went through all these and said to him, are these kind of psychological types? And he looked at me really quite disgustedly and said, no, that's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> but then turned it into a question, which I think is a really good question, which is, how often are you human? in a day. How often do you manifest the possibilities of wisdom and compassion, just using those traditional terms? How often in your day do you do that? How much more of the day are you caught up in the compulsion of blind behavior, endless craving, carping self-criticism, striving to get to the top of your profession or whatever it is or wherever you want to be, and sometimes just being so complacent and smug and egoistic that you don't think you have to do anything. And so it becomes a question about how we are in ordinary life. Because, and this is the important point I was trying, trying to make out of this, is the Buddha, the Buddha in the iconography is generally represented outside of the wheel, outside of this wheel of becoming because that is the only possibility of freedom. It stands outside of this wheel of compulsion. And that's probably a kind of modern gloss on it, I'd put. It's a wheel of compulsive behavior depicting our psychological propensity to rise and fall continuously throughout a day in those realms. So the question becomes, again, how do you want to live your life? <laughs> Going right back to the beginning. How do you want to live that life, that wonderful, wild, precious life, that one wild, precious life? Do you want to live it under the aegis of those compulsions? Or do you want to live it in the freedom that the Buddha represents outside? And let's get it clear that the Buddha was saying this was possible, and I think I mentioned this last night, for every one of you, Every one of us can reach that goal. Everyone can reach that freedom. It's not a mythology. 
It's a state of being. It's not a place. I'll just say something about that because it's very, very important. Because people often come to Buddhist thought, they might even hear teachers teaching, speaking in this way. You might more often come across it in books. But you'll see two polar opposites usually represented. Sangsara, one which I've mentioned, this rising and falling in compulsion. The other, which is juxtaposed against it, is generally Nibbana or Nirvana. That's, most people know this in its Sanskrit form as opposed to its Pali form, Nirvana. I mean, we even have a rock group called Nirvana. We have a perfume called Sangsara. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, these are two are usually juxtaposed against each other, and they often can seem to be nouns which indicate places. This is sangsara, perhaps when I die, if I'm good, I'll go to nibbana or nirvana. It sounds very Christian. It sounds very kind of, I'm going to a heavenly realm. Um, that is not the case whatsoever. It's really, if you were translating this properly, and it's unfortunately it's really awkward in English to do this, you would have to translate it something like nirvana-ing or sangsara-ing. Because what we are doing in this ordinary, unawakened state is sangsaring with a propensity to have a particular feeling tone to it, which is dukkha. Now, for those who are still struggling with these terms, let's try and put that a little bit more into English. Compulsion and repetitive behavior, that rising and falling through the realms, will give rise to a particular experience and it has a tone to that experience, and that tone is often distress, irritation, dissatisfaction, misery, disease. I could go on with the litany again here, but I'm not going to. And sometimes out-and-out out suffering. Original words, the words in the original languages. So sangsaring gives rise to dukkha. That is the tone to it. Nirvanaing is not some other place. This is often made clear in later traditions as well, extremely clear in later traditions, that here where you sit right now, on your cushion as you're doing it, or on your chair, is sangsara or nirvana, because it's a way of being. It's a way of being in this world. This is very, very clear again from the story of the Buddha, of the Buddha, attains on his night of awakening he attains nirvana or nibbana that doesn't mean he pops off into some buddhist heaven what he does is he actually walks and talks and teaches for 45 years out of the nirvanaing experience and that experience is one which is as i say fueled by generosity kindness compassion and ultimately, wisdom, that's the usual translation, but better translations are insight and understanding. You see this very clearly if you ever have any time to look at some of the Buddhist scriptures. You see this very clearly. The Buddha spends a lot of time describing the path to all walks of Indian life. This wasn't meant for super intellectuals or kings, you know, high-powered people in modern-day terms. It was meant for everybody. So you see the Buddha in those stories. And this is why I say it's open to every one of us if we, have, if we make the effort 
you see him talking from blacksmiths to the kings. From the lowest strata of Indian society at that period, blacksmiths were virtually outcasts. They worked with metal, and metal produced weapons, and weapons killed people, and therefore they were cast out of society. They were the lowest strata of Indian society. To the aristocracy, there wasn't emperors at this stage, but there were kings in local local principalities who the Buddha speaks with. So it's that whole spectrum, including women, courtesans, all sorts of people within Indian society. And I think this is a model for saying it's open to everybody. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what your past is, in terms of our compulsions and addictions and where we've come from in terms of our histories and our traumas and everything else, that the path is open to all. And it's possible for all with effort to achieve that goal. And again, in the Buddha's lifetime, this is exemplified by the fact that whole vast tracts of people are supposed to have attained the awakening experience. Um, Buddhism is one of the few scriptural religions in the world which possesses a whole area of its canon. This is, in other words, nothing else can be added or subtracted from it, which includes poems by awakened women, women who've also undergone the experience of awakening. Um, So it's both men and women, irrespective of sex, who are included within this process. And that's extremely important here. So, really, what we've done is lay out the problem and possibly moving towards the solution. The problem is one of our compulsion. I'll look in this more detail as we go through the week. And part of that compulsion is being unkind to ourselves a lot of the time. Now, I want to make very clear, because we are going to explore this much further, that being kind to ourselves, learning to treat ourselves a little bit more gently, a lot less harshly, doesn't mean being self-indulgent. But it does mean to cease from the carping criticisms that we often engage in, the way that we put ourselves down, the way that we can diminish our sense of self-respect. All of these things. Laying them on one side. And if they raise their heads, well, they're friends, you know them. (laughs) There they are again. Hello, friend. (laughs) There you are again. It's a matter of seeing them, befriending them, and letting them go. Part of the problem is not the actual thought, whatever the thought might be, whether it's one of self-criticism or desire or hatred. It's the fact that we cling to it. We hold on to it. We restrain its natural passage. Um, Its natural passage, and this is spoken about again in the psychological literature, The natural passage of any thought, really, is to arise and pass away. To be followed by another arising and another passing away and another arising and another passing away. The only problem is this is happening so quickly in our minds that we very rarely get an opportunity to see the process. Sitting in meditation, walking, we get a chance, in a way, under controlled conditions, to look and to see and to direct our attention to the what is actually going on. And that's really important, to the what actually is going on, not what I would like to, because again, this becomes another source of dukkha for us. I sit down on my cushion, and because 
you know, for example, I announced at the beginning of the day we're going to do calming meditation. Well, it's 8.13 and where's the calm? <laughs> you know, that can be another way that we can create dukkha for ourselves is because we have this expectation about what we are going to achieve. And I think part of the problem often is the fact that we call these things sitting, you know, sitting insight meditation or calming meditation or metta meditation, kindness meditation, and we expect suddenly that we're going to produce these. Um, there is another quality which I will talk about as we again go through. I'm holding out lots of promissory notes, aren't I, for the week so far? Uh, I hope I'll cash them in as we go through. Um, but the other one that I want to hold out for us is patience. <laughs> yeah. It's a big one. Um, patience and forbearance and also effort. This kind of trinity really go together. Nothing says in the contract sitting down to do meditation is going to be pleasant. <laughs> There's nothing in the contract that says that's going to happen. In fact, in a lot of cases, it will not necessarily be pleasant. Sometimes it will be downright disturbing and agitating. But the point is that you get a chance to look at what is going on and to let it go. In ordinary life, being driven under the compulsions that I talked about, and I'll say a lot more about these, being driven by the compulsions that we are, being most of us of addictive tendencies, to want to, if we feel pain or if we feel discomfort, want to do something about it to anaesthetize ourselves against the pain of life, against the pain or the vicissitudes of what is happening in my ordinary life. So we do things to cover that up. The big one that's present in the whole of the Western world, and in fact is becoming present in the whole of the world, let alone the Western world, is materialism. You know, we cover up a lot of the pain of existence by materialism. If you feel sad or if you feel unhappy, go out and buy something. It's the great myth of the consumer industries. You will feel more happy and fulfilled if you do so. Well, it is a mythology, as probably most of us would recognize if we actually stop to think about it. Or we drift towards you know, the, the legalized drugs in our society and sometimes into the non-legal drugs in our society to anesthetize ourselves against the pain of day-to-day -day existence, to numb ourselves to a degree against it. Now, the Buddhist path really is moving with clarity into seeing that tendency, to seeing that wish, that urge, that desire to want to move out of that uncomfortable place that we often find ourselves in. And in sitting, we often find ourselves in uncomfortable places, but we don't necessarily always feel the compulsion to get up and to get out of it. We watch it, we see it arise, and after a while, in many instances, you will see it decline and pass away. You can see desire arise, you can see aversion arise, and you can see them pass away. And I'll say more about that tomorrow. So I'll open it for some questions or comments. There must be questions, by the way. Any comments or anything that people want to say about the practice that we've been doing so far or about what's being said this evening? 
and I will offer responses, not answers. sorts of things. (laughs) But let me just say something about that more seriously. You don't have to meditate with your eyes closed. Um, If you look at, if you were close enough to see the statue of the Buddha here, you'll find, as in most traditional representations, that the Buddha has his eyes half open. Not fully open, half open and looking downwards. And for those who find it a problem meditating with their eyes closed, for one very obvious reason, that sometimes there is this dynamic duo called sloth and torpor that come in, particularly after the lunch period, you know, when people get drowsy and sleepy and want to nod off. Uh, well, actually, one of the good antidotes to that is to keep the eyes half open, you know, to actually keep them half open, because obviously we naturally associate closing the eyes with going to sleep. But if you have other problems with it as well, try it. Try just using, having the eyes half open, just direct the gaze directed downward. This is a nice neutral carpet. I was teaching a place a couple of weeks ago where the carpet was extremely jazzy that was in the meditation hall. Um, And I thought, well, (laughs) looking at that might be a little bit more of a problem. But uh, this one's a very nice neutral color. You can look down and just keep your gaze directed downwards and try that to see, see what happens. Yeah, colour, light, blackness, darkness. Um, you note them, observe them, and let them go. Note them. Don't try to do anything with them. Just see that they're there. And since we're doing, I've been doing today this breathing meditation of just concentrating on the breath, when those images are there, when they're very forcible, note them, of course. You need to acknowledge them, what's going on. But you don't direct all your, your attention to them you bring your attention very gently, very skillfully back to the breath. And if it happens again, because the image is so strong that you drift off, then just lead the mind gently back again. It's, it's training. This is what we're doing. We're training ourselves in attention. In, this particular, in the particular meditation we've been doing today, they can be seen as a distraction. But I don't really want us to use that word. I think it's a very negative word. They're what is happening. They're what is going on. All we're trying to do with the meditation we've been doing today is just to stay as attentive as we can for however long we can without straining and forcing ourselves to stay with that object, being the breathing, just that arising and falling of the breathing. If the mind strays off, so be it. It's not a distraction. It's what's going on, and sometimes it can feel more compulsive to be there than it can be to be with the breath. So what you've got to do, if you're training yourself, is gently bring the mind back again. And if it goes off again, to bring it gently back again. Mm-hmm. 
Um, as I said, this is a training. It's a training in attention. Uh, it's not to say, I mean, whatever's going on, a lot of the things will be very beautiful. For example, in my own experiences, sometimes the colors are very compulsive. The images are very compulsive. But in directing our attention in a particular way, we're seeing all of those, in a sense, being equal, equanimous towards them. We're not particularly attracted towards that which is beautiful. We're not particularly trying to get rid of that which we don't like. I mean, some images can be, you know, some images, some colors can be disturbing. They can be things we, we don't necessarily want, but we treat them equally. We're not giving preference to one and trying to exclude the other. So the beautiful is seen exactly on a par with what we normally would term to be ugly or repulsive or disturbing or however you'd like to language it. Well, you, you see them, you note them, you note the qualities, you can note their attractiveness, but then you bring yourself back. Sometimes it can be useful, sometimes it can be just hanging on. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the teaching, the more, the kind of thing I've been doing more this evening, sometimes it's useful to write those things down just as an aid memoir. In terms of your experiences in your meditation, it can be a way of concretizing things, of making them solid. And of course, if you've had, you know, for example, one meditation where things have gone reasonably well and you felt calm or insightful or whatever it is and you write that down well when the next time happens and it doesn't occur <laughs> I've got it in writing it's here I should be getting that <laughs> it can be unhelpful you know, all we're saying is it because it tends to lay out an ideal of what you want or what you're going through I mean, sometimes it can be useful in most cases not but If it's a real insight, you won't forget it. <laughs> That's the nature of insight. Um, because it becomes a lived experience. It becomes an embodied experience. It's a really, you know, for example, let's take what I was talking about this evening. If you really have insight into impermanence, if you really have insight into impermanence, then you don't get upset in the ways that you do normally. And this is nothing to do with what I think, it's in a way this this complete embodied being of that understanding of impermanence. So I wouldn't get upset if I lose a pen or something breaks or whatever. Not in the same way, anyway. It's a Western invented term. Um... Actually, this happened, i just kind of say a little bit about the history of this. These two terms were invented, Buddhism and Hinduism, at the end of the 18th century. They were to cover the phenomena that the colonial administrations who went to the cultures, where Hinduism and Buddhism, obviously primarily India, in the case of Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, certainly in Sri Lanka and Burma, which were both under colonial administration, British colonial administration. You got scholars who came in who wanted to understand those phenomena, and they weren't very good at understanding things that, you know, for example, Sri Lankans would say to them, such as, you know, um, 
this is the sasana. Well, this word sasana means the teaching. That's the way they refer to it, or the dharma. They never refer to it as Buddhism, which seemed to kind of create this cloak over the whole affair. Because Buddhism, um, even if I continue to use that term, is a far wider phenomena often in its practice than what we think it is. And so that's why I find it a strange term. It actually covers up more than it reveals, actually. Um, also, and this was the other big point about it, and it was true of Hinduism as well, in the case of Hinduism, it was actually even more detrimental because it covered up vastly disparate, disparate, disparate practices and phenomena. In Buddhism, at least, you tended to have a core, perhaps, of um, elements which were shared by traditions. In some areas of Hinduism, they're not even shared. Um, so, in the case of Buddhism, though, when we use this umbrella term, it actually covers up far, far more than it ever tells us about what's going on. And the one major factor, this is where I was going with this, was that it makes it sound like a religion. Now, um, my feeling about Buddhism as a religion is it has dimensions of religiosity, but it's not a religion as such. This is my own personal feeling about it. It has great dimensions of religiosity. Like, for instance, you'll find people doing this, looking like praying and doing all sorts of things and people wearing robes and engaging in ceremonies and that but of course and certainly in terms of the major theistic religious traditions it lacks that one entity, God Um, it does not have a God it had lots of them but demoted (laughs) actually here demoted into these second class citizens Um, but it does not have a creator deity within it the other great thing that um, confused Westerners again which led to them trying to create this umbrella term was when they went to these cultures and actually said to Hindus and Buddhists show us your book because they were used to things like you know, the Torah or the Quran or, or the Bible or whatever and um, you know, Buddhists in Sri Lanka said to them which one do you want we've got thousands of them <laughs> that was the basic attitude um, because Buddhism has this vast literature, and in that particular stage, there was probably no one dimension which was any more important than another dimension of the literature, which was within it. So it was this attempt to unify something which was actually much, much more disparate. And that's why I find it a problem. And also isms. Ooh, I get kind of quite creepy about isms <laughs> of any, any form. Um, because it almost sounds like, for example, to be a Buddhist and to be engaged in Buddhism, you're going to be a signed-up party member. You know, and there's nothing like that in, in the slightest. You know, if you go around so-called Buddhist circles for any length of time, you'll find that. But that's a kind of quick answer. There is a longer one, but I won't give it to you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.